0: Out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is The C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. Let's be honest. This week it's going to be all the way from L.A. Yes, it's going to be Big Flag, because I... Spoke to the one-time bassist Kira Rosler to find out more about life, love, poetry, all that other groovy stuff, as you do. Um, and she's done lots of music after then. So um, anyway, look, you'll find all about Kira in the interview because frankly, she tells me everything. Well, nearly. Anyway, look, after some casual chat, as you do in the world that is showbiz, we got down to that interesting point. Wake up, everyone. Yes, the interesting point. That is, yes, the early musical influences. Kira, tell us more. It's over to you.
1: Well, my father was a classical-only person, so that was, you know, in the household, there was nothing played very early. But I had this older brother um, who... uh, who influenced me a great deal. I mean, we started playing piano when I was six and he was nine, classical piano. Um, And, uh, you know, we we had lessons, we had to practice, you know, it was somewhat of a rote thing. It wasn't necessarily a passion thing, but but out of that, I think for him, maybe more than me, you know, the passion started earlier Um, and then you know fast forward a little bit, and you start having you know he'd have his band in the garage playing his stuff and the guitar player' stuff or and then it's you know MTV comes along and and you can watch bands you know on TV, which of course is unheard of before that and uh, and wasn't as awful as it became you know at the beginning it was kind of cool. And, um, and so you know my brother early was you know into things like um uh, Beatles and stuff like that, but his music got very uh complicated, and he wrote this like forty minute piece um and And he sort of leaned almost leaned very quickly into progressive rock, you know, yes, Emerson Lake and Palmer, you know this stuff, Jethro Tu. And, and so me, you know, coming up behind him, I'm sort of watching and going, you know, I like this, I don't like this, uh, you know, I never became a big Bob Dylan fan. I kind of like the Beatles, no, not so much. Maybe Elton John for, you know, this long, you know, I, I would listen to, you know. And so it would become this sort of bouncing around and Paul got into, you know, the prog rock. Thing, what I call prog rock, right? Progressive rock. And yes. then I became very hardcore into the Rolling Stones and David Bowie. Just, you know, really engrossed in that. But it's almost a separate path with that sort of listening as the playing. You know, Paul, um, he had, like I said, he had this progressive rock band that was doing this big piece of music. And at one point, their uh, bass player quit and i decided well oh, that's what i'll do instead of always competing with him on the piano or whatever the trick is to join him i'll practice really really hard and get good enough so i can join his progressive rock band and mm-hmm. i practiced i practiced like a fiend i borrowed a bass i practiced like a fiend and by the time i could do you know anything at all he had gone into punk rock which was lucky for me because punk rock was more accessible in terms of a musician who wasn't necessarily you know years and years into their experience you know I was raw let's say
0: yes because I was just gonna say it's funny because a lot of what you said is like oh my god I I was like yes that's kind of resonates with me because I because my brother who's seven years older than me and so he's in his early 60s now but he came of age during the 70s and so he consumed prog rock was his thing you know it was yes genesis wishbone ash Barclay, james harvest bit of jethro tall and then a bit of heavy metal he had deep purple and black sabbath didn't have any you know refused to have any singles he thought seven inch singles were just not the done thing you know it was albums and all and the solo work of Rick Wakeman as well which we you know and because and because i idolized him i used to sneak into his room when he wasn't there and listen to these records with great enthusiasm and um think you know and it was kind of you know i was just really curious in tubular bells you know it was like you know what was on the charts and there was a lot of novelty records in the top you know 40 in the 70s especially some really weird novelty records that you hear now and you think, wow, that's incredible. Um, but, you know, this was all very kind of fascinating to me. You know, it was really, you know, it was kind of an interesting time. And, oh, yeah, and that's it. Because when you said Elton John, he had two records in, like, this is 73, 74. And one was Elton John's Goodbye Yellow Brick Road and the other was Sergeant Pepper by Beatles. And obviously, the Beatles had only just broken up then. You'd felt actually, you know, it's weird, isn't it? Because they'd only broken up about three years ago. You know, 73, 73. 74. So, yes, the prog years yeah. were, were quite something as well, weren't they?
1: Yeah, very, very. Uh, I'm going to do one thing because I'm getting a warning that my uh, internet is, well and I have a solution to that before it gets very unstable.
0: Oh, dear. Not in the- Okay. Okay. Yes. So when you you picked up your bass or you picked up the bass, did it all come quite easily to you after your classical training at the age of six?
1: Well, it's funny because I'm left-handed and and I always sort of wondered whether the left hand on the piano and the bass sort of side of things influenced me at all. Of course, stupidly, I learned to play right-handed because I thought, oh, the fingering part is the hard part. So it'll be great. I'll have that hand on there. And then I found started playing with a drummer and I found out that no, the plucking part was <laughs> by then I had you know could have gone too far and kind of destroyed my right hand anyway sad story but uh left-handers should play left-handedly um but I always wondered whether the piano had um just led me down that road I, I always liked the warmer tones and but but sort of intellectually look my brother just had a spot in his band it it was as simple as that and once I got rolling on it you know the next thing was you know we moved uh into this sort of crash pad with a buddy of his and punk rock started and his buddy was a guitar player and my brother started playing drums because you know we didn't think there was any keyboards in punk rock and so bass playing again seemed the natural thing. We had this friend, he sang, you know, and so I had a role and, and it was almost predefined by the people around me.
0: Yes. Blimey. And you were young, weren't you? When you were playing your first gigs. I mean, yeah, I mean,
1: I started bass when I was 14. My first gig was when I was 16 at the Whiskey A Go-Go band. The band was called Wax, W-A-X-X and uh and you know we did what we thought punk rock was you know the singer screamed and i screamed when i sang and <laughs> we played fast and i had a chain on and they cut all their hair off and you know we did what we thought was punk rock it was so early that you know it was there wasn't that much information out there you know about what to do it's not like punk rock was defined it was becoming defined
0: yes i mean you were there when it was still quite interesting i guess weren't you
1: and i'm going to high school you know i mean you know 10th 11th grade and getting beat up for looking like a punk rocker
0: right blimey it was that it was that extreme
1: well there was no other punk rockers in my 11th grade school and Hollywood High when I was in 12th grade had one other punk rock
0: girl. You, must have, you must have stood out so much
1: well totally right because at that time we think about late 70s 80s early you know everybody's the girls look a certain way you know and I always think now looking back well the girls kind of define the fashion much more than the boys do you think about you know I mean, there were, eventually, there were punk rock chicks on the cover of the fanzines. They did not play in bands, necessarily. It was just because they were defining the look.
0: Yes, absolutely. You know?
1: and, and so there was this, and before that, it, there was this, you know, the models, whatever. You saw this look. And you associated with, you know, a beautiful woman had long flowy hair, fair faucet, you know, whatever. There were times yes. all defined. I mean, I, when I was seven years old, Twiggy caught my attention and I chopped all my hair off. I got my mom to chop all my hair off. Well, but, you know, whatever it is, it influences you. You 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 see it as much as a fashion statement for some as the music which you know let's be honest a lot of these bands were rock and roll bands you know the ramones the clash i mean come on
0: yes (laughs) well no yeah absolutely
1: it's pretty rock and roll well
0: i always thought that yeah a lot of them especially like the sex pistols you know it sounded like it sounded like the punk uh the monkeys meets the stooges you know it was kind of there wasn't anything I mean, it was the more the post-punk period that started to become a bit more kind of odd and interesting, whereas the actual punk stuff, when you listen to it now, it seems very conventional because it's like, yep, there you go. That's, that's
1: Well, a lot of it, I mean, some of it had more of a political statement and that people were, like I said, they were dressing differently, that, you know, they had a different, it was an attitude. I often said this, you know, it was as much an attitude as anything you know yes. it was is going on outside because it's disco and it's arena rock you know we're not doing that
0: <laughs> I know and also I suppose at that time because it's like you know anybody who was probably around in the early or the early to mid 60s there was no kind of reference point of what do you do next you're quite new to it. and I suppose it's the same with the punk period as well where you you would sort of there wasn't that much to say what what do we where do we progress from this and at the same time you know i mean it's interesting because we in in the 70s we'd had susie quattro kind of on the stage you know being sort of a a woman all in black leathers you know playing the bass and then you had tina from talking heads and there was various other sort of bands like the uh, dolly mixtures and um yeah, Susan the Banshee. So there was a lot more women sort of appearing in the music scene because up to then, Top of the Pots, that was our go-to place. They had a lot of kind of hairy men with big, with lots of hair, didn't they, and big beards.
1: Well, in the LA, we had a lot of women. I mean, that was one of the attractive things. Again, a lot of these bands you may not have heard of, but when I would go to see shows, you know, there were female bass players. There was a band called the Alley Cats. There were a band called the Eyes. There was, you know, the Bags. There were these women up there playing and uh and like i said then there were all these women who were getting this attention who didn't play at all so it was a it was a balanced you know a sexually balanced thing if you will that you know like real life wasn't like that you know no one was interested in anything i had to say
0: yes well i know Um, But then, but then sort of as the 80s progressed, or we went into the 80s, you know, in the UK, we had the, we'd had the Falkland crisis, war basically, and there was a huge amount of unemployment, so there was a lot of people who were getting into bands, because, you know, you're, especially I remember sort of that age of 16 to 18 where it did feel like no future and there wasn't many opportunities. So being unemployed wasn't a really a big thing and it didn't feel like you were of a failure. It just felt like you were almost doing what a lot of other people did. You just claimed unemployment benefit and we had various other schemes like the Enterprise Alliance where you could claim, you know, for a year but put anything you wanted to because the government just wanted those numbers of unemployed people to be a little bit lower than they really were so they kind of wanted to cook the books a bit really didn't they and so there was a lot of bands that started there but the music scene you'd had the post-punk period and then sort of 83 was when you really had a lot of that indie pop stuff with the smiths and the go-betweens and the june brides and all that kind of stuff but you you sort of you joined
1: Black
0: Flag. <laughs> you joined Black Flag, which were completely different. So yes, yeah, so how did that kind of progression go? Because that's quite early days, isn't it, of the 80s?
1: Well, I mean, no. The, I mean, Black Flag had been going on for a while. And when I joined them, they were my favorite band and uh, and shocking. And, and I was actually playing with Dez, who had been in Black Flag. At one time, we had this sort of power trio, which I had just started with him, really. And we were playing at the same practice pad as Black Flag was and I got this call one day from Henry saying uh, who I had known here and there and he said uh, well Chuck's out of the band do you want to practice you want to jam with Greg and Bill after Des practice and I said sure and then I stayed after practice, and they didn't seem to know anything about it, but I, I said, well, do you guys want to jam? And they said, yeah. So we jammed, and then they asked if I wanted to join, you know, just like that. And I said, well, look, I, I've been going to UCLA. I was three years into my degree at UCLA. You know, I'd like to be able to take – I'll take quarters off, you know, to go on tour and stuff, but I'd like to to work through and finish it. And so just right then, that night, we – decided
0: my god that must have, yeah. did, that must it have was, felt quite surreal because you suddenly were like in one of these kind of pretty heavy hardcore punk bands
1: well I, I was very familiar with a few things about them I knew the hardcore touring schedule and and I admired their work ethic and 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 they had gone through all these iterations, and I liked the fact that they weren't just a stagnant band that didn't change. Um, Yeah. But of course, I had no idea what I was really getting into. You, you can't. You know, (laughs) I mean, the main thing for me was just physically; it was way harder than you know anything I could imagine. I, I always say it's like it was like training for the Olympics. You know, it wasn't a really creative time; it was just hold on, you know, try to keep your hands moving and and survive, you know, the tours with no sleep and, you know, total exhaustion and physically being pushed up against the wall. You know, sometimes losing weight really fast and stuff like that, you know, real signs of physical stress. Um,
0: Yes, I mean, nothing, you won't, you couldn't have been prepared for the touring aspects of this and the intensity of the gigs
1: no i mean i knew but i mean we practiced 5 hours a day to be able to do 2 hour gigs now nobody was doing 2 hour gigs you know maybe some of the arena rock bands but your regular bands weren't doing that now 2 hours playing as hard as you can you know is a lot Yes, you know, and then maybe on four hours sleep because you're touring, you wow. know. So, so yeah, like I said, it's like um, it was difficult to imagine what would be the hard part. Of course, with all of that, came it became difficult at times to get along, in the sense that you're so under stress, you know, that any sort of little grievance can turn into something that gets blown out of proportion. And not that there was a lot of vocal infighting. It's, we were more professional than that, but there was, I would say under the covers, probably some rumblings, you know? There were were signs of rumblings, you know, And, and they came out here and there in various ways, especially towards the end of my tenure there. And and I recognise my own part of it. I mean, being, you know, professional and not showing your emotions in that context is really hard.
0: Well, I would imagine. But you, but you, you were in the band for a good time and you did, you know, three or four albums with them, including... You know, the first one, Family Man, was which was their third album. So, what slip was it that? In,
1: it was it was slip It in Family Man, process of Reading out Loose Nut in my head, and two live records,
0: but who's counting? A, that was that was a you, you had a heavy schedule as well as being a student.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah, oh my God, it reminds me of that film. Is it Flashdance where she was a I don't know a welder by day and a dancer by night? I don't know. It was one of those. It was yeah. One of the, one of those films that we watched in the eighties. That
1: sounds right. With her leg warmers, and I had leg warmers too, you know. But there are yeah. pictures out there with me with leg warmers. Uh.
0: <laughs> and did you? I mean, obviously, you know, going into the studio must have been quite an experience as well, and sort of having that, because that was that a relatively new new experience for you as well.
1: Um. Yes and no. I mean, I I had recorded some singles uh, with Twisted Roots, a couple of other bands, but um, that was my first. I mean, we would do is we would do a 48 hour lockout and basically just play until we dropped and then play go to sleep and then play until we dropped like that for you know two days solid because usually we were trying to record two records like we did slip it in and family man on the same 48 hours the basic tracks right the drums and bass so he would do a scratch guitar and we would do the basic tracks in that 48 hours So, again, the the schedule was rigorous. Also, inevitably, and I can't tell you why, I would have a midterm at UCLA, you know, the Monday morning after this (laughs) 48-hour locker. So I'd be studying when we weren't playing instead of sleeping.
0: Wow. I must admit, you know, there was only one other person I know who's had something similar, which she was in a very different band, and she still plays music, called Amelia Fletcher, and she was in one of those... I suppose you would call them shoe-gazing bands. They were much more sort of, I suppose, softer pop. But she said that she'd often be, you know, writing some assignment during the soundtrack and then sort of having to quickly try and get something finished going on stage and then sort of still studying because she was at university at the time. Because she was saying that she didn't really look at music that was going to actually be a full-time job. She could never work out how that would work. So she was always thinking... I need to keep the studying and the potential job going. And and
1: yeah, I had a starving artist brother ahead of me, you know, to, to show me that possibility, you know, and he has done, you know, he's clawed and scraped his way through, but I recognize most of us can't make a living at music. So that's why I wanted to have this backup degree. I thought, you know, computers would be a, a good backup plan if i couldn't make a living
0: at music yes and the and the intensity and and the passion of the fans how did you cope with that element because it wasn't just like one of these little bands that start and you have a few years with very little interest just clawing your way and playing in small venues i mean you had a very hardcore audience didn't you
1: Well, remember, punk rock was not that big, so it was still clubs, you know, I mean, Black Flag now is sort of, you know, known or notorious, but back then, a lot of towns were playing in, it's a few hundred people, you know, it's not, you know, and and the intensity starts when you're, you know, potentially when you're playing when you're actually playing. And hopefully the stage has a little bit of a rise enough (laughs) that they're not slamming into you, you know. But the bass is a pretty good, you know, way to keep people off of you. And... um,
0: Yes, know,
1: There weren't a lot of really big gigs. Um, So, you know, it works out, it worked out okay. There were a few times when You know, we were going through transitions like, you know, the My War, you know, my first tour was really on My War and My War had had songs on it that were slow and dirty and and they made people mad, you know, and so we'd have an angry, not so much like a hardcore, you know, positive, but a hardcore negative reaction going on. You know, we had people throwing beer cans, full beer cans at times, (laughs) you know and folding chairs in manchester and shit like that so so we had this um i would say you know this changing of the guard of the fans between the sort of old fans who wanted it to be skinhead and they wanted it to be, you know, sound the same, be the same, you know, be punk rock, be punk rock. This is what we think punk rock is. And then what the band was doing, which is no, we are a band that changes and our sound changes and our songs change. And, and that's fine if you're not into it, but this is, you know, the record was out, Uh, you know, this is what we're touring on. We're doing this, you know, we're doing this then
0: we're doing these are these are the songs you know and it, and it's kind of interesting because of there was a lot of the bands that i've interviewed especially in the 80s i mean they have a five-year narrative of they get together you know they make a, a sound after about 12 months 18 months and we had john peel he was the dj you know on bbc radio one and if, you know he would you know like we had at that time you would have i suppose the gatekeepers you know john peel being one the music press i mean there weren't a lot of avenues but you would you would get an instant crowd if you managed to get some kind of play in that and also every little town and city in in the uk would have a indie club night or alternative night as they like to call it. So, you know, it gave bands that ability to sort of step out of their normal environment and sort of get around the countryside. And often, you know, the first album things were going well, the second album not so good. But anybody who ever tours America from the UK come often says, you know, like hundred percent, we came back and we broke up because it just destroyed us. So what was <laughs> it like what was it like for your you coming to the UK
1: then? Well, like I said, I mean, it was rough. London was, it was fine, you know? I mean, I think London was a little more hip to what had been going on and the changes that had been going on. But once you got outside of London, you had, you know, towns that maybe didn't, you talked about these gatekeepers or whatever. They they didn't have the newest records. Or they weren't up, they, they had this video of Henry with a skinhead and now he had hair down to his shoulders. And, and you know, it was, It was, how dare you, you know, is the reaction. Um, And so, you know, there's disappointment, I guess, when you, you know, I was slammed up against the, bar one night saying, you know, you're bringing bombs to our country, you know, because, you know, Ronnie Reagan and Margaret Thatcher were, you know, good friends, right? And I was like, yeah, me and Ronnie, we had this talk and we said, you know, send the bombs, you know, it's like, there was a lot, there was tension between our countries, uh, in terms of the people of our countries, and there was tension musically about what we were doing, and that it was different than what was expected. And, you know, Glasgow was really tough. They just spit on us, you know, like crazy. And then, you know, after the gig, we're just like loading out as fast as we can to get out of there. And they're like, well, that's what we do when we like you, you know. (laughs) Um, Uh, We'll be back in 10 years to see if you've changed how you show. Your
0: appreciation, yeah.
1: Um, But the truth is, you know, Again, that the, one of the cool things about Black Flag was that every gig was just, it was treated like a job in some ways, you know, we it had had to be executed, it, it, we had to play well, we had to stay focused, you know, we had to avoid anything that was going to I mean, shit, we were supposed to show up with Husker Do and instead we had, you know, the Nigg heist. We had this band that was made up of our road crew, you know, making fun of women, basically. You know, so, so they were mad right off because of that, even in London, but anyways, all the gigs, you know, you just treat it with, we hit them hard, you know, we play well, we make sure that we execute our part of it and then we let go of you know the results. We can't Yes. because
0: we well, it. HuskaDoo were, were probably one of my favorite bands of the eighties. So that was like, oh yes, yeah, when you mentioned Huskadoo, we love them, didn't we? Um,
1: well, they flaked out on the tour, so
0: <laughs> just typical of Bob, isn't it? Typical Bob. <laughs> I don't know, they had a few problems, didn't they? Did you manage, I mean, you know, with your intense touring, I mean, obviously there was like, you know, Huskadoo was quite well documented. There was a lot of drug problems. How did, how did Black, Black Flag kind of navigate those kind of tricky waters of alcohol and drink and
1: drugs? It's drug? exactly the opposite. Like I said, it's a job. I mean, Bill and Henry were totally straight. They were, they did not use anything and and Greg and I did not drink. We partook a little bit of marijuana here and there. But, but you know, usually it would be like afterwards we might get high a little bit, you know, like that, you know, and we certainly didn't cross any borders with anything or or you know, take any chances that way because again, you just don't we couldn't do anything that would interfere. So we wouldn't drink because it would interfere, we wouldn't, didn't do drugs, we didn't carry drugs, you know, it was very um, results-oriented in that way. We don't do anything. Now, uh, there were people around us because we sometimes had brought other bands and stuff that at times, you know, were, there was partying. Some, somebody would go to a party and we'd go to rest because we knew touring was hard and they didn't seem to get it you know but it was so hard there was just no room you would get sick yeah we had a new drummer for the 85 tour and and we told him you know but the first like two weeks he was partying and then he got horribly sick and then after that he stopped partying you know
0: i know but do you did you feel that, that, that i mean it's obviously not completely this way but Because your work ethic and your focus seems much more professional than most bands when they're doing their thing at that age, going around doing their first album, first tour, where everything is just like, wow, I can't believe we're living the dream. This is the dream. It's the, you know, the partying. So did, did you often feel quite amazed when you saw other people on the road being completely wrecked?
1: I kind of, like I said, I knew what I was getting into that way, that the, the black flag attitude, and it was part of what I admired about them. So, you know, the fact that other bands were willing to, you know, take that kind of risk. I mean, I had, I had played with other bands. We'd go to San Francisco, you know, we'd practice and, and practice and practice, and then we'd go to San Francisco, and then they'd sh- get up on stage totally drunk and play. Crappy, you know, or something like that, and it's so disheartening if you're that person who's trying to hold it together, you know, to have someone else who just kind of let it fly, you know. Yes. Uh, So, so I've had so many experiences where it was like, no, I mean, if I'm going to put all this time and effort into it, I'm not going to, you know, throw. It's like, why don't I just cut my finger with a knife and do it, you know? <laughs> It's the same thing, you know? Uh, I can only think of one person I had a good time playing when he was drunk, which was my ex-husband, Mike Watt. We did a Dose gig. Dose, it, it dose we were, he was very exacting. So it was fun. One time it was his birthday and he got really drunk and, and we played terribly, but he was having fun and it was just so different. <laughs> that's the only time I can think of that I really uh enjoyed it
0: yes it's probably quite tedious isn't it really but then so when you were coming to that your your last studio album did had you got the feeling that this the writing was on the wall that you were this was going to be the end of the for you and the band within the yes
1: band? I mean I um the last, the, the 85 tour was a four months long. And and yes, that, that, those rumblings that I was talking to you about earlier, the rumblings were a little clearer. Like we'd walk into a restaurant and they wouldn't want to sit down with me at the restaurant. <laughs> <laughs> That's horrible. So, I mean, not to say nobody would, but, you know, there was just this sort of sense about it. Um And then when I was, I think we were in Portland, we were like the night we were recording the Live 85 record, the Who's Got the 10 and a Half record. I called home, uh, I called SST, uh, Mike Watt was working there. And I was talking to him and he was telling me about this tour that they were scheduling. And it was over on top of my final quarter at UCLA, which we had agreed that I would, be going on. So I knew they were planning a tour without me, uh, but they hadn't told me yet. Um, So then we finished, uh, we finished the tour um, and I, and San Diego happened to be the last gig on the, on the tour. And, and, and it was sad, you know, I was sad Mm. the last gigs, the last LA gig, the last San Diego gig, no it was the last gig. So it was sad. And then they called me down. Actually Chuck called me down because he was sort of the manager at the time and he said, you know, those guys don't want to play with you anymore. And and yeah.
0: You know. That's so but did you I mean just before that, you did the album in eighty five in my head, which was the studio album. Was that a good experience?
1: Yeah, I mean, again though, it was It's like when you work with people, right? You don't necessarily have to like everybody. You don't necessarily, they're not necessarily people that you would hang out with under normal circumstances, you know, and that was very much how it was all treated. I mean, Greg had kicked Bill out before the 85 tour, like two weeks before it shocked me. Yes. And I had to somehow pull this other guy together to get him ready for the tour. So you know, he's he had gone through singers and, and bass players and drummers and stuff. So it's not that much of a surprise because
0: God, it's like the Godfather, isn't it?
1: He, there was a certain amount of you know turnover. If it was, you will. So how did you get on with
0: Henry? Did you um did did you have a you know because he was always being the front man. I mean, did you have a chat with him when you left?
1: Um, not at first, no. Uh, it was, it's was funny, after I left Black Flag, I did my last um, quarter at UCLA. And then after that, I had to find a job. And the, and the job I got was in Connecticut because my father had hired the guy who was running the computer department at Yale University, so I moved back to connecticut where i was born and um and henry came out on a spoken word tour and i think that was where we had this conversation and uh and it was not you know very much about what happened with me he he talked about sort of uh inheriting the corpse of black flag you know in the sense that he got the letters and you know of course being the face you know he got the questions he got the letters and, and stuff um he got he got asked in person and in mail you know a lot he had to write people he had to, to talk about it um yes uh, did he feel, did he feel
0: but, bad about the way it finished with your, your time in the band
1: you know, I, I don't know how he felt about it. They did another tour. Uh, I don't know how he felt about that. I know there were some bumpy bit, bits of that tour, but I don't know. Uh, I, I don't know exactly how it went. And, um, and, you know, we have talked, Henry and I have talked here and there through the years. It's very cordial. Um, literally like a happy birthday email or something like that. It's very cordial. I'm very cordial with Bill um, as well. And, uh, you know, I mean, of course, there's no hard feelings because in the end, we were all there to do the same thing. Now, interestingly, his book, Get in the Van, he said a a lot of really mean things in it because it was his journal. And again during the rumblings right it makes sense so so he would write during the rumblings in the fourth edition he he kind of takes it all back <laughs> you well know, because he gets some distance from it and and it changes how you look at
0: things. yes well or, i th- i think most people at the time when they have an argument it's the other person that they're blaming and then with time they often look back and go actually I played a part, I had to play a part. You know, you have to take responsibility, don't you? You have to realize if there's an argument with two people say, it's like, it's a bit been, you know, you both played a part in that for very, you know, and I think that that's when you- I when was you... just
1: a bitch because I was tired and I was cranky and it wasn't really about you at all. Yes. <laughs> you know what um, I mean? It's like, what I had to realize is that my behavior, you know, had some really rough edges, you know, and that was my part, right? And and it had rough edges with all of them. And so, no, although no one could say, well, you did this and that necessarily, I behaved badly, you know, I, I couldn't maintain a um, cordial professional manner all of the time and that's enough. When you're working as hard as you're working
0: yes and you're young you you're pretty young weren't you i mean let's face it i mean I'm
1: 23 you know 23 24 by the time I'm, I'm 24 by the time i'm out
0: i know and that's that's quite intense really i mean most people don't look back and think god i acted just brilliantly all that time from my, from the age of 18 17 to 8 17 to sort of like 23 24 i mean you know you cringe when you look back at some of the things you do. So, I think you have to give yourself some slack, really.
1: Yeah. Well, it's not.
0: It's not it's, you're not the wisest person, but you've got amazing confidence.
1: <laughs> like you said, it helps to to look at your part so that even so that even if it never gets cleaned up, that you have some idea, and you don't sit here stewing over what somebody else did because that certainly is worthless.
0: Yes. But then, you know, so that, that was obviously that that one chapter that's slightly folded or closed. And then you know you, you get straight back into your next project, which is the do's, which is obviously, you know, you put your base dos. down
1: DOS. <laughs> it's called Dos, too, in Spanish.
0: Good. I'm glad you okay. picked that. Otherwise I'd have gone through life thinking it was the other dos. Yes. So then, yeah. So that that obviously helps to fill that void that that had sort of been left with being in the band and all that intensity as well as the creative process
1: yeah I mean I started working but um, uh, Mike and I had been dating and um, he lost the boom was a huge part of his you know life and his music partner and i had been doing these bedtime stories for my nephews who were really young and one of them had trouble sleeping so i would read bedtime stories and i would overdub these intertwining baselines and so uh when mike lost the boon i would go to his house and we would just noodle around on these Baselines. I would show them these baselines, and we noodled around on them. And then we started developing others, and and we started going. Well, if we're going to have a two-piece bass band, we don't want anybody else to get in the way. Yes, <laughs> that was pretty much our motto.
0: And did that? So, and yeah, I was going to say, and did that sort of feel like a really nice kind of project to sort of not ease the healing, but certainly to sort of feel like you could put your energy and focus into something else.
1: Well, in a lot of ways it was more uh, filling the hole because it was way more creative. Like I said, Black Flag wasn't a creative time. So now I was getting to actually write songs. Now I was getting to figure out what kind of sounds I liked and how to intertwine bases with this nut job that is my quad, you know, and, and, and like uh, really experiment with music, like to me, Dose is very punk rock. There's no other, there's not a lot of other bands that sound like that, right? Yeah. It, it's very anti everything else. Yes, absolutely. It so, um, so it was very creative and it, um, and it was sort of unlimited in terms of what I could do. Um, Mike eventually did get kind of busy because he was doing Firehose and he started touring and stuff and I would, stay at home and work but there was always you know songs in the in the pipeline and stuff so so yeah it filled it filled in that idea of me being a a a musician if you will
0: yes but that was also I mean did that was that quite complex because of his kind of intensity and also the tragedy of his death of his kind of band member and being married that's tricky isn't it that's a lot to play with
1: Yes, Uh, yes, yes, and yes. I mean, in some ways, no, because there was no, um, you know where they are, you know, practice, you can, you know, you're just sitting right there and and you can sit down to practice, you know, so it's, it's the the logistics are not difficult, but the, the way, you know, how with your partner, your moods and your interplay kind of goes up and down, so you might be in a very, feeling very creative and very interested, but that doesn't necessarily mean the other person is. And you're right there going, "Well, let's come on, let's do this," and they're in some other space, you know. Yes. So, so um,
0: that's difficult, isn't it? That it is, difficult.
1: and the expectations, I would say, is also an issue, you know, what what do I expect from you, my husband, to help me with my creative thing? And what do you uh, expect from your wife in terms of, you know, music and or everything else? You know, I mean, he was started to work very hard and tour, so he wanted me to hold down a certain amount of the, the home front while he's away on tour and that gets complicated, you know, so, so expectations, make it complicated and then you actually sit down and play you have expectations of what those should sound like and what your part should sound like and why don't you write the part and I wrote the part and you don't like the part and your part is too busy right and so so yeah
0: yes and someone hasn't done the washing up my god
1: um it's chaos (laughs) frankly um and uh, with a lot of love, but a lot of chaos.
0: Yes, I could imagine. So, th- yeah, but so you've obviously, I mean, you did your your degree um, in computer, the computer world, but you obviously, music has obviously been the thing that, that you've worked with for the rest of your life, haven't you?
1: Well, I don't work in music. Um, I My sound editing job is dialogue and AVR. Right. So that's not music editing in the features. That's uh, all of the people uh, talking or laughing or yelling or cheering or any of that stuff. So uh, music is still sort of the secondary gig, except for right now because uh, we're on a bit of a hold on the on the on the film industry. But normally speaking, the uh, music gets constrained to early in the morning before i go to work because by the time i got finished with a day of working on a movie my ears don't want to listen to anything yes <laughs> but so what, but it's, it's work on music you know? yeah
0: but you've you've done a lot of film work as well
1: yes so um yeah i've done you know 30 50 i don't know depends on how you count them there were uh it's because my early days of film, I was working in this sort of very small, sort of low-budget sound house, right? And the big deal would be that there would be one copy in Blockbuster, if anyone remembers that, Blockbuster video. Oh God, right? yes. And there were the big movies, and then there were the little ones that were, there might be only one copy. <laughs> so it started there, you know? And it went all the way to, you know, Academy Award nominated and winning sound jobs, you know, so... so uh, so, no complaints. The career kind of moved along and and I was able to get a lot of different kinds of work and work with different people. it's one of the things I love about this kind of work, unlike the corporate world, which is what computers were like, this world, the project ends, and then there's a new set of people and a new set of issues you know, and you don't it isn't got that forever feeling yes that you do
0: in an office job, you know? Yes, absolutely. God, so LA is your home, isn't it? Yes. Yes. So look, because you've had a fascinating, gosh, it's amazing really, what you managed to pack in. Um, I mean, what would you, if you could have said anything to your 18 year old self, what what would you have just kind of wanted to whisper to them when they were starting out on stage and doing their thing? Probably 16 in your case, actually. <laughs>
1: You know, it's the same thing I say to myself now, in a way. It's like, enjoy what's happening right now. Because oftentimes when I'm stressed out, overworked, anxious, whatever, right, I, I fail to enjoy the part that's enjoyable. You know, I'm working on this big movie, and it's really exciting. And I look back on it, and I go, wow, what a great project. But during it, I was kind of miserable <laughs> and the same thing happened, you know, during the music stuff a lot. I was stressed and I was, you know, I had to go to practice. I had to go to school and I had to go to practice and I was struggling and my bass was heavy and I was carrying it, you know, and you're dealing with all of the sort of uh, logistics of your life and you miss out on the, watch what's happening. Like you said, well, isn't this amazing? That you're playing on stage at 16 isn't this amazing that you got to join your favorite band you know whatever it is like i guess it's that stay in the moment but it's more than that it's it's be grateful for that stuff in the moment that uh may not feel physically or emotionally wonderful
0: yes it is
1: wonderful
0: (laughs) i know god it's kind of weird isn't it it's like I did, I did, I had to confess, I did one, I did go to one of those Tony Robbins kind of workshops once, and he, and he said a few things which were quite good, he said some things which weren't so, but he did say you, you can choose, you know, how you feel, something like that. I suppose what it was, like, you can choose how you react to stuff, you know, that is your choice, and everything is up to you, you know, so you... If you want to moan at everything, you will moan. If you want to look at it as a positive or an opportunity, you'll look at that. But that's your, you, you know, if you take control or you, yes, take responsibility for yourself, then you can start to make those decisions or that mental state. And I think that was quite an interesting thing because I suddenly realized it's like, when I hear some news like, you know, the, the other day the car failed the MOT and I was like, oh my God, that's a disaster. And my partner was going, well, you can choose to feel like that. Or you might just think they'll fix it and it'll be fine. It's like, oh no, it'll be a write-off. It'll cost thousands. It's going to be a pain. And then it was fine. It was just like, it needed a five pound gasket replacing. It's like, oh, that's fine. But I, I saw myself reacting in such a catastrophic way. It's like,
1: yeah i've I've learned to meditate a little bit now for this exact reason maybe it'll slow me down enough to take a look i love this one meditative. is this buddhist monk monk who paints a tiger on the wall and then he's terrified of the tiger all the time (laughs) like we do as you say we do create this uh anxiety ridden moment or we don't and we have a total choice
0: yes this is this is true and when you just lastly I mean when you look at those pictures of yourself back then I mean they're amazing photographs you look you have such a look and attitude does that do you just smile when you look at that that young person
1: um you know it's like a lot of things it's 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 almost more fun when someone else sees it and reacts like I get to I can see it more through their eyes kind of like going to Disneyland with a kid you, you, yeah. you see their experience of it so if someone finds out I'm in Black Flag and pulls a Google you know does a Google <laughs> and pulls it up and I get to watch their reaction that's when I get to have a moment of uh, um you know wow that wow that's amazing you know? yes. but, a, Yeah, because
0: there's a brilliant picture of you in in canterbury uk isn't there which is on your after me it's on your wikipedia page and it's like oh that's that's um and there you go with your black coat you know black leather jacket the hair the expression it's like yes amazing Yeah.
1: I got a little help though whenever it's like too made up or whatever you know that someone played you know doll with me because it's just never been my thing but I have let a couple people uh play makeup doll with me um but yes uh that's how I know what picture is what but but so yeah it can be fun when somebody else uh reacts but um of course for me it's just a uh it's just a photo, like, you know, the ones of me as a, as a baby or as a little kid, you know. It, yes. it, there's a whole library of them going back to me being, you know, a, a, a little tot. <laughs> <laughs> well,
0: indeed, we chuckle. Anyway, that is the end of the interview. Thank you ever so much for listening. If you still are, well done. Um, that was Black Flag's Kira Rosler and many other musical combos. Um, This has been The C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. If you want to contact me, you can, for some random reason. Make it nice, though. Um, You can find me on Spotify, iTunes, and Podbean. Uh, Those are the shows. Just go C86. And also, I'm available. I'm available. Not really. But you can also contact me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. That's also C86 Show. And uh, yes, keep it positive and groovy. Otherwise, don't bother. Look. Have a great week. Stay safe.